Hi, this is Lisa Lind. By way of introduction, I am a longtime attender of New Life. I've been attending the Bible study for, um, I would say, about 13 years. And I have spoken at the Bible study for, I would say, four or five years. I would like to start us off with a prayer, so please join me. Dear Lord, thank you first and foremost for who you are. You are our rock, our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Thank you for your word. Psalm 12, verse 6 tells us your words are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Lord, I thank you that I can be here reflecting on your words in Titus 1. These last weeks have been full of so many changes, but James 1, verse 17 tells us that you do not change. Your words are an anchor for us to hold on to in the midst of the storm of uncertainty we're in right now. Thank you for your for our church leaders who are encouraging and shepherding us through your words and by their actions. Lord, would you help us to pray for them daily? Help us to hear what you have for each of us in this passage and help us to apply it to our hearts and let it flow from there into our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week's passage is Titus 1. And before I start, I just wanted to share my struggle with it. In the midst of life turning upside down due to the spread of the coronavirus, I had a hard time focusing on this passage. I had started taking notes and formulating a loose outline before the seriousness of this virus became clear and before things started closing down. And after that, my focus became the virus. As I began to write about Titus 1, I kept thinking, how do I make this passage focus on the qualities of a good church leader and how to deal with false teachers in Crete apply to what we're all experiencing right now? I prayed and I finally flat out asked God what he wanted me to say. In the course of a couple days, he gently and patiently revealed this. The virus is not your focus. I am. Study my words. Then, once he helped me to focus, it became clear that the things Paul is writing in this letter to Titus give us a clearer picture of what's expected of our pastors and elders and anyone who has a leadership role in the church today. In this season, we are needing them to teach and shepherd us more than ever. So as we go through Titus 1, think of those you know who carry the great responsibility of leading us. Think of the spiritual leaders you're thankful for and consider how to pray for them and their families as they represent God and his truth to so many. Also, consider how each of us who follow Christ can be a help to others and point them toward the hope we have beyond our current circumstances. Paul gives us immense hope in his greeting to Titus. But first, I think it would be good to look at some general background information on this letter and discuss what we know about Titus. So Titus 1 is one of the pastoral epistles along with 1st and 2nd Timothy written to instruct those in leadership positions in the church. If you listened to Jane's talk last week on 2nd Timothy 4, you'll remember that Paul was nearing the end of his life and was giving Timothy important instructions to continue preaching and shepherding the faith of God's people. This letter to Titus is believed to have been written around the same time as 1st Timothy after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. So the events we read here would have preceded 2 Timothy. What do we know about Titus? Well, Titus was young like Timothy, but was Greek and a Gentile. 
From what we read, he was valued by Paul and extremely helpful to him in his ministry. Titus is first mentioned in Galatians 2, where he travels with Paul to the Jerusalem Council with Barnabas for an important discussion regarding Mosaic law. The issues up for discussion were whether Gentiles had to abide by the ceremonial customs of the Jewish people, such as diet and circumcision, to be considered Christians. The outcome from this meeting, luckily for Titus, was that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. In Galatians 2, verse 7, Paul says that he had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. He says that God was at work in him as an apostle to the Gentiles. In 2 Corinthians, we see examples of how much Paul trusted Titus and how Titus was well-received by the church in Corinth. Titus was called by Paul to deliver letters. Uh, Commentators think he was the probable deliverer of the severe letter to the Corinthian church, uh, which was struggling with a host of sinful behaviors. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6-7, through Paul recounts Titus sharing news of how the church was showing sorrowful repentance. And then later, Titus shares that he was encouraged by the way the Corinthians treated him, even though he was there on a mission to rebuke them and hold them accountable for how they were living. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, Titus, with two Christian brothers, is entrusted to collect money from the Greek churches in Corinth to then go and be donated to needy churches in Judea. Now here we are in the book of Titus. Titus has been left on the island of Crete to finish the work with the churches there that Paul could not finish for some reason. Namely, Paul asks Titus to appoint strong, faith-filled elders in every town and instructs him on how to deal with false teachers. Titus 1 can be broken down into three main sections. Paul's greeting, qualifications for elders, and false teachers. There's a lot to unpack here, so we'll start with Paul's greeting, which gives us some words of encouragement. I'll read from the ESV version here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Savior. In one of the commentaries I read, R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappelle discuss how before Paul's dramatic conversion, he thought of himself as a servant of God. He thought he was righteous and godly on his own terms and was defending the faith by rejecting Jesus. But by God's grace, he allowed Paul to have an encounter with Jesus that changed his heart and his behavior. Paul came to understand that he was saved by grace and needed a savior, and then he became a true servant of God and an apostle, a special messenger of Jesus. This is true for us, too. When we fully realize that God has given us a Savior in Jesus and that it's all by grace, God's unmerited favor, favor, God begins working on our hearts, moving us closer to godliness. Then we, too, can truly be God's servants without any motive other than gratitude and love for him. Next, Paul points out that our faith and knowledge rest on the hope of one day living eternally with God as we were meant to. Paul tells us this has always been God's plan from the beginning of time. In verse 3, Paul says, At this appointed season, he, meaning God, has brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me 
by the command of God our Savior. Paul is spelling out God's purpose for him at this point in time as an apostle of Jesus, to foster faith, knowledge of the truth, and hope of eternal life to come. Commentator John Stott says, In this way, the worldwide preaching of the gospel throughout the historical process is the bridge which spans the two eternities of past promise and future fulfillment. It's also important to note in verse 2, Paul interjects the words, God who does not lie. This points us to the hope of God's character. He is a God of truth who keeps his promises and does not lie. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We know that God keeps his covenants first and foremost because he sent Jesus. This reference to lying also foreshadows what we read further into the text. With the prevalence of lying in Cretan culture, Titus would need to push against it with God's truth, as well as the elders appointed to refute the false teachers. Paul's greeting comes to a close with the words, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The note in my NIV Bible says that in all of Paul's other greetings, Jesus is called Lord, yet here he uses the word Savior, and the word Savior is mentioned six times in the book of Titus. Perhaps it's to reiterate the importance of sound doctrine, salvation through Christ, not reliance on religious customs and myths, as we'll look at shortly. As we move on to the section on appointing elders, here's some more background information about the island of Crete. Crete was the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea, and it had a seaport that one commentator described as sleazy. There were a lot of towns on the island, and people there were known to be immoral, lazy, and dishonest. Paul had left Titus with a chaotic situation there. Though not uncommon in other churches, and even in our society today, There was a struggle to live in the land, but not be of the land. As with all churches, the churches on Crete needed proper leadership to maintain stability. The good news is the power of the gospel transforms. So Paul clearly had faith that there were men with the qualities needed on Crete to lead their churches. Similar to what we read in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives qualifications for elders slash overseers, Uh, which in my research I learned um, that these terms are synonymous um, and they are also the same as the word pastor. They all refer to the same office of church leader in the New Testament. As we look at some of the specifics of the task Paul is giving Titus, let's look at some other places in the Bible that focus on the importance of the role of church leaders. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2 says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. You can gather from these verses how important it was that Titus find men of unquestioned integrity since they would be responsible for not only leading, but caring for and protecting the people of the churches. Think about the search process a church goes through when they need a new pastor. There are so many elements to consider since this person will be caring for and overseeing people's spiritual well-being. This was a huge undertaking for Titus. 
The main thing Paul tells Titus to look for is someone who is blameless. Commentator John Stott is quick to point out that this does not mean faultless. The Greek word translated means unaccused or marred by no disgrace. Clearly, we are all flawed, but an elder should be known for being honest and sincere. But imagine the microscope someone seeking to lead the church is put under because of the gravity of their responsibility. Paul goes on to break being blameless down into three areas in the candidate's life. The first one is personal life. The second one is behavior. And the third is knowledge of doctrine. The first one, being blameless in one's personal life. Verse 6 reads, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Being faithful to one wife at that time, elders were typically older and would likely be married with children, but this did not mean a single man in good standing could not be an overseer. After all, Paul was a single man. When looking at the candidate's personal life, there should be no red flags that might question their character. This next line threw me a little. It reads, a man whose children are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. So no parent I know wants to be judged by their child's behavior, and every child I know is disobedient. So that disqualifies all parents. Well, one commentator used the word incorrigible to describe repeated unacceptable behavior and also referred to the Greek word techna, which would refer to a younger child still under their parents' care. The word children also indicates that stability of the whole family would be considered, not just the behavior of one child. The main idea, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 3, is if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? I'm going to interject here that in addition to praying for our church leaders, we also need to pray for their families. They spend a lot of time ministering to people within the church which means that there's a sacrifice being made by their wives and their children if they have them. And I think unfair expectations are sometimes put on them, so they deserve our prayers and gratitude too. The second point, being blameless in behavior. Verse 7 and 8 read, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In reading these verses, the words self-controlled and disciplined jumped out at me mainly because I think of them as the same thing. If someone possesses self-control and discipline, they likely won't struggle with the negative traits listed in the list of nots, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not violent, etc. But self-control in itself is extremely important for a leader to be able to maintain composure and patience in the face of crises and conflict. The more I delve into this passage, the more convicted I am that I don't pray for our pastors, elders, deacons, youth leaders, small small group leaders enough. Looking at the list of traits led me to reflect on the greatest servant leader model we have, which of course is Jesus. Whether being considered for leadership positions or not, all Christians seek to be like him. One of the things I love most about getting into these Bible study passages is getting to look closer at Jesus's life and how he served, even though he was pulled in so many directions. Let's look at how Jesus exemplified a few of these traits. 
For self-control, we can look at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus is in the desert being tempted by Satan. In verses 8 through 10, it says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was tempted four times, and each time he battled back with God's words. Being hospitable. The Bible tells us Jesus didn't have a place to rest his head, yet he made people feel welcome and accepted. One of my favorite interactions is where Jesus heals a man with leprosy in Matthew 8. It reads, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. The part I love most is that Jesus touched the leper. He didn't have to. He could have done it with his voice or a wave of his hand, but he chose to touch him when he healed him. I include these examples because Jesus is our Savior, yet he was a servant. I love Jesus, and there's so much we can learn about relationships and our hearts and loving each other when we look at him. I wish we could look at more examples, but as John 21 verse 25 says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Now we're going to circle back to verse 9, um, which deals with being blameless in the knowledge of the truth. So verse 9 reads, He, meaning an elder or a pastor, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. An overseer or an elder or a pastor should be able to teach the message of the apostles as it had been taught. When a pastor preaches, it's often twofold, meant to build up and strengthen the faith of believers and protect them against corruption from false teachers. He must be able to, to disprove those who oppose the true teaching in order to protect the church. Solid preachers were needed to combat the false teachers who Paul addresses in the next section. Paul starts off by referencing rebellious people, mere talkers, and deceivers. The rebellious people are teaching principles that are the opposite of what the apostles had preached. If we remember back to 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, the mere talkers are who Paul refers to as the false teachers preaching about myths and genealogies. Then there is the circumcision group, which we touched on earlier when I mentioned that Paul and Titus attended the Jerusalem Council, referring back to Galatians 2, verse 12. In verse 12, Paul quotes one of their prophets as saying that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This quote is credited to Epimenides, who was a Cretan teacher, poet, prophet, and miracle worker. But Paul certainly doesn't believe that all Cretans have such poor character. John Stott cautions us that as Christians, we are to remember that any people group is made up of individuals, and we need to avoid the danger of stereotyping. Paul knew that there were some Cretans who were liars and were teaching false doctrine with selfish motives, but he also knew that there were Cretans who were men of integrity, 
who had been changed by the Holy Spirit and would preach the truth of God's word. In verses 13 through 14, Paul tells Titus, Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Paul's goal goal is to bring all to a saving knowledge of God's grace and mercy through God's word. A common problem then and now is the temptation to listen to people over God's words. One of the things Titus and the leaders he appoints would have to contend with was battling what people said versus what God said via the apostles' preaching. In many social circles today, God's words are unpopular. Some consider them old-fashioned. Some don't believe them to be true. But unpopular doesn't mean untrue. I have heard people say that those who believe what the Bible says are narrow-minded because their views are conservative, which in many social circles is unpopular. In some places, being liberal is more popular. But can it be said that those who don't believe God's words are perhaps narrow-minded? In verse 14, Paul's use of the words sound in the faith again remind us that like the people in the churches on Crete, we need to be grounded in God's truth so we're not misled. Here are some questions to ask ourselves. Are we spending enough time in God's word and are we taking it in? Do we we believe God's word is true and is that affecting how we live? Moving on to verse 15, Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. The pure here refers to those who are spiritually pure, those who the Spirit has worked in, and there has been an internal change. Those who are corrupted, meaning the false teachers, were focusing on the outward Jewish physical rituals and myths they believed made them pure. These rituals included what they allowed themselves to eat and how and when they washed their hands. With some of these rituals, they also rejected some of God's good gifts, which is what Paul meant when he said, But to those who are corrupted, nothing is pure. They were content to live by their man-made rules, which kept them looking godly on the outside. But these rules would not produce the heart change that would move them toward godliness on the inside. Jesus addressed heart issues often with religious groups such as the Pharisees. In Luke 11, verses 39 through 41, he says, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Matthew 15, verses 10 through 11. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And lastly, Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus was concerned with people's hearts, as was Paul. Our pastors today are concerned with people's hearts as well. It is very easy in the business in the busyness of our culture to neglect our hearts, and that is why strong leadership is strong church leadership is so vital. 
Lastly, Paul has more to say about the false teachers. In verse 16, he says, They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. This connects back to Paul's greeting, where he talks about knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. These false teachers slash deceivers were claiming to be godly, yet they were causing upheaval by preaching righteousness through rituals and customs and doing so with selfish motives for some kind of gain. If we know God, then our actions will show it. Galatians 5, 22-23 tells us what growing toward godliness looks like with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. As Christians, we should see growth in these areas in our lives, and we should see some of these characteristics in other Christians. When I first started coming to this Bible study, I was not a Christian. One of the things I vividly remember is how kind and patient some of the ladies were to me. They were attentive to my questions about God and Christianity, and looking back, they were very patient. I had some of my own ideas, which were not scripturally sound, but the conversations were always gentle. I never felt judged or condescended to. And years later, I realized that many of them had been faithfully praying for some time for God's word to take hold in my heart. And over the years, I have been blessed by so many amazing women here. I'm so thankful to those who were strong spiritual mentors and the elders and pastors of this church who shepherd us so well. What a blessing it is. Here's a prayer to end us. 1 John 3.18 Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Father, you are almighty and all-knowing. You care deeply about what goes on in our hearts, and you call us to grow to be more like Jesus. Thank you for the work you are doing in so many lives. I'm thankful for your words in Titus 1 and for the leaders you have called to point people toward you. I pray especially for our church leaders and their families right now during this unprecedented time as they encourage and shepherd many anxious and frightened people. Would you flood them with your peace, wisdom, discernment, courage, strength, and rest. Thank you for their character, their care, and their love for you and those you've entrusted to them. Help us to remember to pray for them often. Lord, as Jesus made time to spend alone with you, would you help our elders, pastors, deacons, small group leaders, and each of us who follow you carve out time to be with you so we can be near and also so we can examine our hearts. Please help us to live out your truths by how we serve and support one another with each day that comes. In Jesus' name, amen.